Star Wars came out in 1977. I was three years old and my dad always said to me it was the first time I'd actually shut up for an hour and a half in my entire life because I was just mesmerised by what I saw on the screen. I try and bring that element of storytelling into everything I do in my work within life sciences because people remember stories, they latch onto stories and, and that has just stuck with me throughout. Hi everyone, I'm Clay Hausman, CMO of Octana and host of Contextual Intelligence. Today's guest brings a new and interesting perspective to our discussion as the founder of PharmaForum, a digital publication aimed at, the aimed at the pharmaceutical industry. Over the last 11 years, he and his team have identified trends about how digital impacts the industry, especially around social media and content-based engagement. He can be often found on the conference circuit as a frequent speaker on these topics. Paul Tana, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Clay. It's a pleasure to be with you. So Paul, let's start at the very beginning, or not necessarily the very beginning for you, but for PharmaForum. It's 2009. Where are you working at the time? What's your thought process about what the market need is and the creative idea that you had that kind of sparked you to create PharmaForum? So I'm going to go back actually a few years before then to around 2005, because at that point I was working with IMS, uh, now called IQVIA, uh, doing commercial consultancy. Um, I've been there a few years, you know, helping companies understand how to engage with doctors and optimize their marketing and all that kind of fun stuff. Um, and that was great, but it started to become a little bit samey. And it was probably around that time that I kind of felt this desire to, you know, could I do my own company? Could I try and do something that I had created and built? And I didn't know at that time what that would be. I really didn't have much of an idea. And I followed at the time what I thought was quite a logical thought process, which is, well, if I want to do my own company, I'm pretty good at doing consultancy, but I'm pretty rubbish at networking. I'm pretty bad at sales. I need to kind of learn some of those things. So I did something kind of crazy. I took myself out of this nice, warm consulting environment with IMS, and I moved into recruitment consultancy. And there I was suddenly cold calling HR heads, trying to win business, doing something I was completely out of my comfort zone with. Um, and I did that for a couple of years, but it, it was really good at just challenging my skills. It was really good at helping me to understand how to operate in a sales environment, how to network, all those kind of fun things. Um, I didn't then go straight into Pharma Forum. After that, I spent a couple of years with a company called Smart Analyst, uh, which was um, certainly at the time was doing a lot of analytics within the life sciences industry. Big team of, of people based in India. A uh, small group of people based in the US, and it was me and one other person in the UK, really running Europe. So, and it was a, a friend I knew from IMS before was the other one, and it was very simple. He said, "Look, come and join me. I don't care what you do. Work from home. Here's your target. Here's your target clients. Get on and do it." And in many ways, that was a perfect precursor to doing my own company because I was completely independent. I had to operate on my own. Had to go out and win the business, deliver the business. And so I did all of that very deliberately to try and build up my networking skills, my sales skills, and that's exactly what it did. And through that journey, I was thinking about what is it I want to do? What is this company that I'd like to create and build? And I could have done something like recruitment, but I felt it wasn't really my passion. I was more interested in the jobs of the people that were doing that I was interviewing. Um, but at the same time, I was watching the internet and social media start to develop and these online communities spring up. And in particular, there was one called Piston Heads, which was like a car enthusiast community. 
And I thought, this is great. This is, this is people chatting to each other online, sharing. How can we take some of that essence and bring it into the pharma industry where the publications are quite old school, they're quite industry talking to itself? And that was the inception of Pharma Forum. You know, let's launch a new publication within the industry that is a bit more inclusive and brings in the voices of the patients and technology, the physicians, all these different voices to the industry. Now, fortunately, I'd got no idea at that time how hard it was to build a publishing company, or I probably never would have done it. But that was the seeds of, of launching Pharma Forum. Interesting. So it's been 11 years uh, since the founding to now. Um, you just recently uh, were acquired by Healthware, is that right, a couple months ago? So congratulations on that. Thank you. And so over those 11 years, what did you find to be sort of the most interesting and engaging work as a, as a publisher and a consultant that's, who's monitoring the industry? Maybe, maybe even the most unexpected part. I think the most interesting work, and this has been fairly consistent for me, I mean, life sciences is a, is a fascinating area, as you know. Everything that we do, whatever aspect of it you're working in, you know at some point it has an impact for patients, and that's incredibly rewarding. But the two areas for me I've always found most interesting has been anything to do with digital transformation in a sense of digital health and how that's coming into diagnosis and treatment and things like digital therapeutics coming through, challenging the way we look at what a medicine is. And the other side of it has been patient engagement, which I think is linked to that because as kind of social media has democratised communication, patients have become empowered they're looking at not just medicines, but also digital interventions. And it's becoming much more of that consumer dialogue alongside the traditional physician and industry dialogue. Mm -hmm. A lot of the content in your publication covers technical innovation. From your point of view, what do you think people misunderstand about emerging technologies like artificial intelligence right now, of course, but others over the past 11 years that you've tracked? What do they understand about how to incorporate them, how to get the most out of them um, into the commercial process? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, I think there's a couple of things that spring to mind here. One is that people get really excited about the technology itself. And we've all heard about, you know, the Gartner hype cycle and those kind of curves. And often it rings true. People get so excited about the technology, they're not thinking about, well, what problem is it solving? You know, what purpose is it for? What's the real need for this piece of technology? And, and so very often I think that's why it fails. But the other thing I consistently see, and I think it's particularly true in areas like artificial intelligence, is you have this very sort of, black and white debate around, well, it's going to be artificial intelligence versus doctors. So there'll be no doctors and it's all AI. Or it's going to be AI versus sales reps. And that's just not the reality. What we're seeing actually happen is that when you bring something like artificial intelligence together with a person, whether it's a doctor, a sales rep, whatever the setting, that is much more powerful than the person on their own and the AI on its own. So I think that's really misunderstood, and I still hear that a lot. And I think we have to sort of challenge ourselves and say, technology by and large is not replacing people. It's helping them do their jobs better, and that is the right way to look at it. So you're the first uh, journalist we've had on the podcast, so I'm going I'm to tighten the screws on you a little bit on this one. And I'm very <laughs> curious to hear your reaction, because this has come up often, this sense that it's AI versus 
the physician or it's AI versus the sales rep as opposed to AI and. And a lot of that, I think, stems from the way media covers the topic and uh, moves towards more provocative or inflammatory kind of positionings on it because it grabs attention. Um, why do you think that is? Why, why, how do you strike that balance between, okay, we need to say something provocative, but at the same time, my sense is, as you're articulating here, is that it very much will be a complementary puzzle that needs to be figured out. So as our, as our journalism representative, please defend how media covers that. Well, it, it's unfortunately too often a fair accusation of the media industry because, of course, you think about the way we're driven and we're all driven by incentives. If you work in, in media and publishing, you're driven by numbers. You want as many eyeballs as possible on your story, on your publication, because ultimately that's what drives advertising revenue. And so, of course, that doesn't tend to take you to a point where you go for a nice, balanced, middle ground headline because no one's going to read that. It takes you to the kind of Daily Mail territory of, you know, red wine cures cancer or some nonsense along those lines. And it's something I've always been really aware of, actually, as we've built up Pharma Forum, because I think particularly because we operate in the life sciences field um, and we're not directly communicating or aiming to commu communicate directly to patients, but we have a responsibility, I think, to present a fair balance. But you do constantly hit that hurdle. And I will always remember, speaking of the Daily Mail, probably about a couple of years into my journey, meeting the chap who at the time was the, the managing editor for the Daily Mail online. So this was probably around 2011, 2012. And at that point, they were the biggest online newspaper in the world. And a connection of mine set me up with a meeting. And I was really excited about this. I thought, I'm meeting someone here who's at the top of their game. I can learn so much from this meeting. And I had sort of 20 minutes with this chap. And don't get me wrong, he, he was lovely. But the thing that stuck in my mind was he said, well, you just need to write more content. Just get all of your journalists doing 10 stories a day, catchy headlines. Don't even worry about whether it's accurate. It's just volume, 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 keywords, keywords, keywords. And I kind of walked away thinking, well, I can see why that's successful for you. And I can see why a lot of publications are pushed in that direction. But that doesn't work for me. So I guess my only defence to your question really is I'm probably blaming Google here because, of course, that's the way Google works. It's probably not a very fair defence at all. Yeah, well, I, I, it's probably not a fair, uh, fair position for me to put you in either. I did, I did get my undergraduate degree in journalism, so that was the path I was initially headed down. And I think there is some of this trade-off. As you say, there, there's certain uh, motivations that drive you in one direction, even if other parts of your perspective and your background lead you to want to go in a different direction. So yeah. do you find maybe you have to wear two hats that way when you are a publisher and you're needing to drive as much viewership as possible or readership and you need to to address that goal, you wear one hat, but then maybe when you're a panelist on the conference circuit and you're sharing your perspective, you can you can wear a little bit of a different hat because you don't have that pressure for readership? I try and take a balance in both aspects, to be honest. And, and for sure, we publish certain news stories that get thousands of hits and you get really excited and you go, let's just do more of that stuff and have more of those keywords in. And then you kind of caution yourself and go, well, yeah, OK, that, that's been great. But we can't just write about COVID, for example. We have to co cover some of the more niche issues, which are really, really important to people. And that's the balance I also take when I'm speaking. But I also think there has been a bit of a journey that publishing has been on. And I think certainly when I started, it was all about the raw numbers. And I think people are now starting to realise and, and perhaps re-embrace quality journalism. 
that not everything you read online is true or even well written. And it's not just about that volume. It's about quality of content. And increasingly, it's not just about volume of audience. It's about who are those people? Are they a relevant audience? Are they staying engaged on that publication? And I've seen a real transformation there in people's mindsets the last few years. Great. Um, this does all have relevance to our topic, contextual intelligence. All of these things have such interesting context to them. Like you have goals that you need to achieve as a publisher, but then there's the context of readership and of headlines and clicks and keywords. And so it's all, it's all fascinating how you bring all these different elements into the, the decision-making process. It's a lot of what we see also with customers that we, we share in the life sciences industry and the different context points they need to account for. Um, let me ask you, unfortunately, because we all need to think about the industry through the lens of the current pandemic and how it's affected the way that we operate as businesses. Um, the life sciences industry is one that typically operates with very long timelines from R&D all the way through the full commercial cycle. And yet the current pandemic is all about and has driven sudden change and how and has required companies to adjust very quickly on the fly to environments we've not seen before. How have you seen life science companies and their partners handle that adjustment? What do you think they're doing well? What's been most challenging as they try to deal with the disruption in their personal lives, in society, and in obviously their business? Yeah, that little thing called COVID that we, we seem to spend a lot of time talking about at the moment. I mean, first off, I think, I would say, I think there's never been a better time for the life sciences industry to show its value and show what it does best. And I'm not saying, you know, we should treat COVID as a, as a PR opportunity because that, that's not the case at all. But I think now is the time for the industry to shine. This is why thousands and thousands of people work in research and people work in all aspects of companies to make these things happen. And you're right, you know, the pace of it can seem very slow sometimes, almost glacially slow. But I think to some degree, that is part and parcel of big companies. And you see that in every sector, the bigger the company, often the slower things are. But of course, as we all know, it's also regulatory. You can get a medicine out to market in a year or less if you don't follow any of the regulations and you're happy to go with the risk. But that's not the right way to do things. We have to make sure that when something comes through, we understand the risk versus the reward and we know what we're getting into. What I think we have seen with COVID is a couple of things happening. So one is an absolutely massive investment by the industry in looking for vaccines, treatments, things that work. I mean, they've definitely accelerated the pace of the research and what they're doing. But I think we've also seen, in an appropriate way, some flexibility from the regulatory authorities to say, we've got to find a bit of a middle ground here around helping accelerate that process without increasing the risk too much. What I think will be interesting to follow is when COVID goes away, and we all hope it will soon, will those changes remain or will we revert back to where we were? And I like to think that some of the innovation we've seen, some of the acceleration, both within companies and from the regula regulatory authorities, will stick and will make things a little bit quicker in the future. You were pretty early with that perspective. I think you wrote a piece in, in April or you published a piece in April around the how things were going to change coming out of the pandemic and that it would be a balance between physical and virtual that some of these things would would remain and, and it's sort of catalyzed a shift towards digital that has been gradual and now it needs to be sudden and as a result of that some of those things will 
We'll stick. What what gave you such a sense early on in this that that was going to be where we ended up? Because I think that's the common dialogue in the industry right now is that it will be a blend of some of these things are here to stay and others will revert back. We're not going away from sales teams entirely making in-person visits, but we are certainly going to rely upon digital channels, for example, much more frequently. Yeah, so my starting point for this really, and this, this might seem an odd thing to say from somebody who's launched a digital publication and is such a digital enthusiast, I'm a massive fan of people actually meeting. I love meeting people. I, I, I say I love travelling. I used to love travelling and I hope I can travel again soon. I think people need that social contact. And no matter how good the technology, there's something not quite the same about a video call as there is sitting around a table with somebody. So I've always been one of those that says no matter how good the tech, we're not going to see a complete transformation away from that sort of face-to-face contact. But equally, you've got camps of people saying, well, of course people are doing digital engagement right now, and of course they're doing telehealth because they have to, but the minute we can go back to that face-to-face, that'll all go away. That's not what I'm seeing, and that's not what I ever thought would happen, because some of the things that we're seeing now, whether it's... um, B2B digital engagement or things like doctors and patients doing telehealth engagement, there has been no reason why this couldn't have been happening four or five years ago or more. And actually, for certain instances, it's a much more efficient way to engage. It works really well for all parties. The only thing stopping it happening is the behaviour change. We've always done it this way, so we'll always keep doing it that way. And we're quite stubborn as human beings. We don't like to change. Ask my wife and she'd definitely confirm that. So with something like COVID coming along, it's forced that change, it's triggered that behaviour change, it's flicked that switch. And so I don't think we're going to go back in some of those instances to where we were with face-to-face engagement, but only some. It's going to be a blend. Yeah, I think if I can, I'll tell you a really quick story because I've had a number of telehealth appointments, unfortunately, during this time period. But I had one with an orthopedic surgeon who was showing me an MRI result, but he was needing to do it through telehealth. And he had my MRI up on his computer screen, but he had me on his iPhone and then he pointed his iPhone at his screen so I could kind of see the MRI result. And it was, you know, he, he, by his own admission, this was early in the transition to telehealth, he was struggling with it, but I was asking him, do you think as soon as this is done, whenever that might be, that you're gonna go back to the old ways and just really rely on face-to-face? And he said, no, I, it will be a blend. I'm gonna get better at it than I am right now. I'm trying to figure these things out on the fly because I have to, but there's certain things in terms of checkup appointment, check-in appointments and, and brief conversations that make sense for digital. I don't need to require you to drive across town to come see me. And there are other times that we do need to be together. And so there is typically a catalyzing effect. As you say, human behavior is, we don't particularly enjoy change. There's no. a narrow band of us, the early adopters who like to explore things, but the rest of us like things as, as we're comfortable with them. So yeah. um, it's interesting. We also tend to generalize with, with these things. We talk about telehealth as a single thing, and we talk about patients as a single thing. And of course, everybody is different. So there are some instances where telehealth doesn't work very well, You know, where maybe the patient wants a bit more emotional support, or the physician needs to sit down and actually have them in the room and pick up some of those very subtle cues that maybe something's not quite right with the medication, or there's some kind of communication barrier or learning disability or something along those lines and other cases where it's perfectly appropriate. So it's always circumstantial. It's never a kind of one size fits all. Yeah. 
Well, Paul, the, one of the other interesting things I think you bring to this conversation that we've not had on yet is you are our first uh, guest f who's based in Europe and understanding how different the European market is uh, in our industry. So I have a number of questions. I guess maybe just as a starter, if you could give us a bit of an overview, because I know for your publication, you track global trends and you certainly look at trends in North America. But as you assess the European market, what are the what are the top elements that are, are the top issues that are arising to the surface right now that are important for people to be aware of? I like the way you say that I'm in Europe, by the way. That's a bit of a sore point for anybody sitting in the UK, but we, we, we won't go there too much. Um, I mean, first of all, as, as many people listening to this will understand, Europe is a collection of very, very different countries. And I think that's often seen as a challenge by companies operating in that space. So different reimbursement systems, different healthcare systems, and you need to really understand each of those market dynamics to understand how to operate that market. The US, by contrast, is often seen as a single homogenous group. Free pricing market doesn't face any of the same sort of market access barriers that you have in Europe. But I actually think if you look at what's happening in certainly some of the European markets, and maybe the UK is a good example, uh, with NICE that's assessing, is a medicine cost effective? I think that is inevitably coming to all the markets in the world. And I think it's coming to the US. You look at the way the insurers start to look in the US at what works and what doesn't. It starts to resemble very much the health technology appraisal process that NICE is applying. So I think that there's two sides to this. One is understanding those different European markets and how to operate in each of them. But the other side is learning from those markets. And I think there's enormous learnings to be taken from European markets that can tell us where maybe the US is going and the direction of travel there and what companies need to do. Equally, I think that operates in reverse. The US is clearly a major market for things like digital health and digital therapeutics, and you tend to see things emerging there first, or potentially China, before they come to Europe. So I think there's learnings both ways. You know, data strategy, data access, data privacy, those are, are topics of importance in any market around the world, but I think they've become especially important in the European market, um, especially around GDPR and some other initiatives. So what would you recommend to companies, maybe especially ones that are based outside of Europe, who are doing business in Europe to prioritize most with regard to data? So first of all, have a clear purpose for why you want the data, and that's a fundamental part of all the regulations. I think people get really excited about data, and they just want to get as much data as they can without necessarily knowing what they're going to do with it. And you know, as I say, a key part of regulations is understanding why you need the data, what you're going to do with that, and having a strategy that works around that. But also, data again is very circumstantial, and the way we view data privacy is very circumstantial. And I had this conversation um, a couple of years ago, uh, with a parent of a child with a rare disease. And we were talking about, you know, very sensitive patient data, who has that, who doesn't have that, the kind of things that hit the headlines. And their view was, I don't care who's got my child's data. I, I don't give two hoots about privacy. If I can get that data out there and somebody can help find a cure, they can have it. They can do with it whatever they want to do. So it's a very personal perspective, and it's about understanding the regulations, it's about understanding the markets, but it's also about understanding the use case, whose data is it you're asking for, what purpose are you using it for, and if that purpose meets your needs and theirs, you're probably on pretty solid ground. If it's too one-sided, particularly if it's for your needs and not theirs, irrespective of what the regulations say, and you might well keep within the regulations, 
at some point you're probably heading to trouble. One thing this current environment has required of all of us is to be adaptable and to think about how you would adjust, not only for yourself, but teams that you may work with or teams that you might manage. And so, uh, and we do a lot of reflection around that. So you think about how you can adapt to different situations. What have you maybe learned about your own leadership style for the team at PharmaForum and the way that you approach your work and the way that you coach others who may be newer in their career to, uh, to be adaptable? What, what have you learned and what have you shared with them through all of this? I think a key thing I've learned is to get out of my team's way. Um, and when I started Farmer Forum, I'd never really done much management. So that has been a real learning curve for me as I've built the company up. And for anybody who's done lots of management, they will all tell you there is no book you can read that will tell you how to manage people. Everybody is different and you have to treat everybody individually. But I think one of the things I've certainly struggled with early in my career was just letting go of stuff. Like, you know, I'm a real perfectionist. And letting other people do things, and they might do it in a different way to me. They're probably doing a better way than me, actually. But letting people do things in their own way can be very effective. And so when we as a team all went remote earlier this year, and we did this about a week before the government announced it, it's really any remnants of that that were in me around trying to control what people are doing and, and essentially interfering have just been drummed out of me. And actually it's been wonderful because... It's worked really well for us as a company, and I'm very lucky. I've got a fantastic team. But there's all kinds of stuff happening and projects being delivered and articles being written and new ideas for the publication that I've had very little visibility of until they appear. And this stuff is just happening. And it just serves to remind me to get out of the way of people because they know what they're doing, they're very good at it, and they don't need me looking over their shoulder. <laughs> Understood. Makes sense. Um, I guess my last question before we pivot into some, some fun stuff about you personally, um, you have a unique perspective on trends in the industry. And obviously so many things are wrapped up in COVID and how different companies and individuals, patients, physicians can all adjust to it. But let's, if we could, I know this is hard, set that aside for a moment. What were you tracking trend-wise that you were seeing coming maybe right before all this happened? And then do you see that resuming or what will you be tracking once we're able to get back to some sense of, of normalcy? So the thing that has always fascinated me and I have seen really accelerate because of COVID is what I call convergence within life sciences. So you go back 20 years or so, it was a very linear process of I've got a symptom, I don't feel too good, I'm going to go and see the doctor, the doctor's going to tell me I've got this, give me a medicine, go away, take that off you go. Now we're in a system whereby lots of different things are converging together to support wellness of individuals. So diagnostics, for sure medicines are still critically important, both, both preventative and treatment. Um, but you've got digital diagnostics and digital therapeutics coming through and how we live our lifestyles and that more engaging conversation between a patient and a doctor and then apps that help them manage their lifestyles to bring all of this together. So that convergence of technology with medicines, with diagnostics, with treating the whole person, not just the patient and not just the disease, I think has been a fascinating journey. And I feel like it's, to some degree, only just getting started, but it's been massively accelerated by COVID. Interesting. Yeah, makes sense. Well, listen, Paul, thank you for that. Let's, um, if you are, are game for it, we're going to pivot into some questions about you here. Always. Uh, what we call, you know, our guest in context, in this case, Paul Tana in context. So, uh, my first question for you is, who has been an influence on your career 
that might surprise us? That's a really fun question and possibly a slightly strange answer. I would have to say George Lucas. And the reason why I say that is I'm a massive Star Wars fan. I love his work. And I always remember, well, I don't remember directly, but I remember my dad saying to me, so Star Wars came out in 1977. I was three years old. And my dad always said to me, it was the first time I'd actually shut up for an hour and a half in my entire life because I was just mesmerised by what I saw on the screen. And I love so much about those stories. I love the science fiction elements of it, but I love the kind of good versus evil and all that that comes through. And that has kind of triggered my passion for creativity and storytelling. And I guess to some degree, I'm maybe a frustrated George Lucas. I'd love to be you know, doing my own film like that or writing a Harry Potter book. But I try and bring that element of storytelling into everything I do in my work within life sciences because people remember stories. They latch onto stories. And, and that has just stuck with me throughout. I'm going to resist the urge to go off on a, on a wild tangent about film and storytelling because I have a lot of personal passions there myself. But that's a that's an interesting answer. I assume you've read the George Lucas biography. Uh, which I haven't a, actually. No, uh, no, I haven't. Should. You should. Yeah. So I would I would order that. It's uh, it's really interesting. Just uh, take all the way through his uh, early film school days through the, the mania around Star Wars. It's it's a really good. Yeah. Uh, amazing. I it a lot, so. Amazing vision. I'm sure I'll, I'll check it out. Yeah, good. Um, okay, so if money was not a factor, what career would you most like to pursue? Of course, it can't not be publisher of PharmaForum. We know that is your top <laughs> choice. So two, number two after that. I think I'd, I'd probably be, and money would not be the object here, by the way. My talent would be the object here. I think I'd probably want to be a Formula One racing driver oh. because I love cars and I love traveling and seeing the world. And you put those two things together, and of course, they get paid a fortune when they're really good at what they do. That's a pretty good life, isn't it? Going around the world, yeah. racing, driving these cars, partying, seeing glamorous places. I think that would be quite fun. That's good. I like that. So how about on the flip side, what profession would you most not want to pursue, no matter what it paid? Again, this is a really tough question. And, I, and I, I, all kinds of obvious answers come to mind around, you know, you could obviously say things like, well, I wouldn't want to be a drug dealer or work in the tobacco industry or those kind of things where you know you're making money by hurting people. But I think there's, that there are some professions that I have enormous respect for that I know I probably couldn't do myself because it just requires a strength of character. So you look at something, for example, you know, in healthcare, people that work as nurses or doctors in things like children's hospices, I just don't think I could do that job, especially now I've got kids myself. I mean, that, that's such a hard thing to do, but such a valuable career that in a nice way, I just don't think no matter how much you paid me, I, I would want to do that job or could do that job. But I've got such enormous respect for people that do those kind of jobs. Yeah, that's an interesting perspective. We've not had that perspective before around appreciation for a profession that you just know that maybe you're not qualified for or doesn't fit your personality, but you're incredibly thankful exists with other people. So, I mean, you just think about you or I, if we have a busy day at the office and we think we've had a bad day and you put it in context of people doing that kind of role. Yeah, we've not had a bad day. Their jobs yeah. are hard. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so what is the best film or television program you've seen recently and why? Something we all have a lot of time for right now. Yeah. Well, I, I was going to say, yeah, sadly, I don't find that much time for, for sort of watching TV or getting into box sets or watching films. I try and do a little bit. I probably spend far too much time watching kids programs because of the age of my kids and watching SpongeBob SquarePants or those mm -hmm. kind of things. 
But I'll tell you one thing that I really latched onto recently and I really enjoyed was on Netflix, the series of Cobra Kai, which is the kind of follow-on series from Karate Kid. Now, I'm of an age where I grew up with the Karate Kid films, and again, a bit like Star Wars, I thought these were fantastic tales of the underdog coming through. But actually, the way they've done this series is really smart. I mean, it, it triggers all of that nostalgia. They've got the original Karate Kid up against his nemesis, and it's kind of tracked their lives. But then they've put a really interesting twist on the story, and it's really looking at the story from Johnny, who was the bad guy in the original film, from his perspective. And it's making you question that simple view in the original film of, well, here's the good guy and here's the bad guy. And it's twisting that around. So all that nostalgia, all that new twist, I just soaked it up and I immediately completed two series and I can't wait for the third. Interesting. So you are the second or third person who's now recommended, not on this program, but in my life, who's recommended Cobra Kai. I will, I will have to take a look. I think, And it has come with a, a guarded recommendation of there will be parts that make you say, oh, I'm not going to watch this, but you have to stick with it. It's really the nostalgia element and the, some of the twists to it. So I'll take a look. You, you have to stick with it. But it, the thing that really grabs me is just diving so much deeper into this guy, Johnny, who was the bad guy in the films. And you start to really get under his skin and understand him. It's very cleverly done. Well, on the flip side, I, my wife and I are somewhat addicted to Ted Lasso right now, which is on Apple TV, which I would be very interested in your perspective because it is about sort of a, a stereotypical hillbilly college football coach from the U.S. who comes over to coach a British a Premier League football team. Uh, but it is also based on a commercial, a TV commercial that ran here in the States last year when NBC got the rights to the Premier League. And you thought there's no way this is going to be successful, a TV program sure. based on a commercial and yet the way they do it is it, it's very, very good. So maybe I'll uh, check I it recommend. out. We'll, we'll circle back and compare notes. Exactly. Um, all right. So you're at a family gathering. Your eight year old nephew asks what you do for a living. What do you tell him? How do you describe your job? So I've almost tried to have this conversation because my son has just turned eight and he very quickly loses interest. So the longer version, which is probably where I go wrong, is if you look at what I do, there's different elements. Yes, I'm running a publication and that's super exciting. But then for me, day to day, a lot of what I do is kind of digital consultancy. So helping companies understand how to digitally transform or how to do things like patient engagement or the creative side, helping them with communications of one variety or another, whether it's medical, corporate um, or marketing. But I guess the simple version is, if you boil it down, what do I really do in my role? And I think it comes down to two things. I help people communicate within life sciences, and I help connect people within life sciences. And that has always been my passion. You look at the tagline for Pharma Forum when we launched, bringing healthcare together. Whenever you bring different people together in healthcare, it could be patients, doctors, industry, whatever it might be, really cool things happen and they share different perspectives. So at my core, I guess, and I've got this on my LinkedIn profile, fully enough, I'm a, I'm a communicator and a connector within life sciences. Nice. Good. All right. Last question. So your ultimate dinner party for four, who is in attendance and what is served? Again, it's a great question. So I feel like I've got to have somebody Star Wars in. And the obvious answer would be George Lucas for that one. But actually, if I had to pick just one Star Wars person, it probably would be Mark Hamill, who obviously played Luke Skywalker. And I, it sounds like I meet a lot of celebrities, I don't. I don't tend to get starstruck by people, but honestly, if Mark Hamill was there, I'd probably completely freak out for at least an hour 
and then I'd come on down and kind of want to know more about his career and how he got into the role. And I think that'd be just a fascinating story to hear his perspective on being involved in those in those films. So that's one. I think number two, I'd love to have someone like Bill Gates there, um, partially because I'm really interested in the technology side and to hear again his backstory of how he started out and he built Microsoft and to ask him why the heck he launched that paperclip helper about 20 years ago that nobody liked. Um, but then more interestingly recently, to look at what he's done and the good that he's done with the wealth he's accrued through the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and his investment in tackling infectious diseases, you know, to understand why he's doing that, what his vision is, I think that would be absolutely fascinating to understand. So he's number two. The third one would be somebody from the sporting world, um, because one of my hobbies, less so during lockdown, but, but more historically, has been rowing. I love getting out on the river. I've always found it so relaxing. Um, and it's just an amazing sport. It, it looks so simple when it's done right. It's incredibly hard to do right. So I'd probably invite Steve Redgrave. Um, and for people that don't know Steve Redgrave, and he's a total legend in rowing circles, he's a British athlete and he won five Olympic gold medals in rowing at five Olympic Games. So he went from 1984 with his first gold medal to Sydney 2000 and to have a career that long in a sport where most people are kind of over the hill by 30, and he won his last gold medal at 38, I think is amazing. And along the way, he had Crohn's disease, he had diabetes, he had all kinds of problems. And just the strength of will the man has had to achieve what he's achieved, I'd love to hear more. And I've met him a couple of times, but I'd love to hear more about his story. And the final one and I'm probably on slightly dodgy ground here, getting a bit political. Um, but this is not really about the politics. I'd love to have Barack Obama at the dinner. And the reason why, like I say, it's not about the politics. I just think as you listen to him speak, he's just the most amazing orator. The way he engages with people, again, it comes back to he's telling a story. You know, when he was president for his couple of terms, he was clearly trying to get messages across. It was all about the politics. But he was telling people stories in a very genuine, in what came across as a very human way. And so I'd love to have him there just to maybe give the after dinner speech and, and see how it can be done so well. Yeah, fascinating. Yeah, I was going to say the common thread seems to be a, a facility with storytelling or people who have very interesting stories to themselves. So one thing I sometimes skip on this. So do you have what is served to them? Do you have a particular cuisine that you are uh, going to be served. Well, this is my kind of, you know, stock birthday meal. And my, my wife laughs at me this because I'm such a child born in the 70s and grown up in the 80s. But it would have to be prawn cocktail followed by steak, followed by pavlova for pudding. I mean, that's a classic 70s and 80s dish. <laughs> and I just keep it simple and go in that direction. Very nice. Very nice. Paul, thank you so much for joining us. It was great to have you on. A lot of new, interesting perspectives for us to think about, and I really appreciate you taking the time to join us. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much, Clay. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Contextual Intelligence. I'm your host, Clay Hausman, and we'll be back in two weeks with a new episode. In the meantime, you can find all our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please leave us a review or a comment or a question or all of the above so we can make sure that this podcast brings the proper context to your work. Thanks, everybody, for joining us.